Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Fusion Science Radio. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. In the studio with me today are Ian Wolfe and Arwen Cross. I'm Julianne Popple. On this edition we'll feature Beard Beer, Smart Slime and Cute Science. But first up, here's the science news with Ian Wolfe. Cuteness increases productivity. Researchers at Hiroshima University in Japan have published a paper in the Public Library of Science, PLOS One, titled The Power of Kawaii. Viewing cute images promotes a careful behaviour and narrows attentional focus. They write, Kawaii is an attributive adjective in modern Japanese and is often translated into English as cute. However, this word was originally an effective adjective derived from the ancient word kawa hayushi, which literally means face, kawa, flushing, hayushi. The original meaning of ashamed, can't bear to see or feel pity, was changed to can't leave someone alone or care for. In the present paper, we call this effective feeling, typically elicited by babies, infants and young animals, cute. In their first experiment, the fine motor control of participants was tested by having them play the Japanese equivalent of the operation game called Billy Billy Doctor Game. People played the game either before looking at cute images of puppies and kittens or after. People performed significantly better after viewing cute images. They also had people looking at less cute images of adult dogs and cats with less improvement in playing operation. In the second experiment, this finding was replicated by using a non-motor visual search task. This involved counting the number of times a particular number appeared in successive 40-digit groupings. Test participants completed as many of these number groups as possible in a three-minute period. Performance improved more after viewing cute images than after viewing less cute images. Viewing images of pleasant foods was ineffective in improving performance. In the third experiment, participants performed a global local letter task after viewing images of baby animals, adult animals, and neutral objects. In a global local letter task, participants are asked to indicate, as quickly as possible, whether a stimulus contains the letter H or letter T by pressing left or right on a response pad. Now, it sounds easy, but the task requires a fair bit of concentration, as sometimes the letter you're looking for is actually composed of a series of other letters, while at other times the letter you're looking for is spelled out in a larger letter. In general, global features were processed faster than local features, but this global precedence effect was reduced after viewing cute images. The paper concludes, Results show that participants perform tasks requiring focused attention more carefully after viewing cute images. This is interpreted as the result of a narrowed attentional focus induced by the cuteness-triggered positive emotion. For future applications, cute objects may be used as an emotional elicitor to induce careful behavioural tendencies in specific situations, such as driving and office work. 
Hang in there. I'm wondering if this, uh, well, I'd refer to it as cute image priming, could be used in a in a wider range of applications, like for sporting people to get them focused before they compete. I can't see why not. It all depends on whether or not they've got. Well, they'll have to see whether it's fine motor or gross motor things mm-hmm. that are improved by cuteness. But I guess it shows those little office posters might be more useful than you might have thought. And, of course, I have the paper here, all however many pages there are here, um, should you want to go in detail into the methodology of playing Billy Billy Doctor game or, or any of the other traditional psychological tools. <laughs> Perhaps some other time. Perhaps. <laughs> And next, Beard Beer. The scientist reports that brewer John Mayer of Rogue Ales went searching for a new yeast to brew a new beer and found the best one was right in front of him. Beer is made from hops, barley, water and yeast. Rogue Ales already grows its own barley, hops and even honey, which it uses to make mead. The next step was finding a source of homegrown yeast. The brewery asked White Labs to find a new yeast strain around their farms or brew house. They set agar culture plates all over their property to trap and grow some local yeast. For fun, they included nine hairs from John Mayer's beard, unshaved since 1978. The bearded plate turned out to be the only one that had yeast suitable for brewing beer. The beard's hair yeast performed like a hybrid between the brewery's house yeast strain called Pac-Man yeast, which is used to make most of the rogue ales, and a wild yeast. The scientists brewed it up and taste-tested it, along with gas chromatography to find out about the volatile flavour compounds. The brew had a mild, fruity aroma and lacked any harsh medicinal flavours that sometimes result from using wild yeast. In fact, the beer tasted so good, the scientists double-checked they hadn't mistakenly used the Pac-Man yeast strain instead of Mayer's beard yeast. So, how could this happen? Well, although there's over 1,600 species of yeast, only a small fraction can ferment, and the ones that do are usually found on animals, insects, and sweet things, like rotting fruits and tree sap, and of course, inside breweries. Breweries and wineries regularly grow dense cultures of yeasts and become coated from floor to ceiling with the fungus. And though human skin usually doesn't carry brewing yeast, it is crawling with other yeasts, such as Malesisia, which can cause dandruff if it gets out of hand, Mayer's 20 years of brewing history makes it likely he's picked up some yeasty hitchhikers along the way. The yeast provides a spicy flavour that they don't want to mask in the new beer, which they'll call new crustacean. Now, I'm a lover of beer and I'm a lover of scientific innovation, but this particular um, rendition uh, makes me slightly uncomfortable. It reminds me of... You know the old joke, someone with a big bushy beard gets a bit of food trapped in it and then says, oh, look, I was saving it for later. Not sure I want my beer brewed off that, no matter how fruity and novel it tastes. It does It does sound a little bit icky, but uh, I wonder about, um, you know, if, if a beer brewer has beer brewing yeast in his beard, then do bakers have baker's yeast in their beard? And could we be finding a new sourdough concoction if we uh, if we culture some more beards. Ah, I like the way you think. You never know. I mean, yeasts are useful. I think people will be kind of divided on whether they find that disgusting or amusing. 
and whether they'd be willing to try it or not. But rogue ales are apparently known for having odd things, so maybe they should branch out into sourdough. And schools, we'll send scouting parties to collect books and stuff, and then, like you, we'll teach the kids, not poems and rubbish, science, so we can get everything working. Alpha Centauri has a planet. Alpha Centauri is the closest star system to Earth, just over four light years away. Alpha Centauri is a triple star system composed of a binary star, two stars much like the Sun, one slightly larger and hotter, called Alpha Centauri A, and the other slightly smaller and cooler, called Alpha Centauri B, which are orbited themselves by a red dwarf called Proxima Centauri much farther out. The European team in Chile discovered the planet orbits close in to Alpha Centauri B. It's technically called Alpha Centauri BB. Planets have lowercase letters assigned to them, starting at B. So that's a capital B and a little b. Now, BB is only a little heavier than Earth, making this the lightest planet found around a sun-like star. Its year is just over three days, meaning it must be only about 6 million kilometres from its star, which is much closer than Mercury is to the sun in the solar system. Even though Alpha Centauri B is a bit cooler than the sun, this still means that planet BB is baking hot, far too hot for liquid water. The astronomers detected the planet by picking up the tiny wobbles in the motion of the star Alpha Centauri B, created by the gravitational pull of the orbiting planet. The effect is minute. It causes the star to move back and forth by no more than 51 centimetres per second, which is 1.8 kilometres an hour, about the speed of a baby crawling. This is the highest precision ever achieved using this method. The first exoplanet around a sun-like star was found by the same team back in 1995, and since then there have been more than 800 confirmed discoveries. But most are much bigger than the Earth, and many are as big as Jupiter. The challenge astronomers now face is to detect and characterise a planet of mass comparable to the Earth that's also orbiting in the habitable zone where water can be liquid around another star. Actually, I was at a uh, talk at Macquarie University uh, on the weekend, and, and Macquarie's one of the, the sponsors for 2SER, so that's nice. Um, but they had a, a researcher there who was talking about um, discovering planets, and uh, he said, you know, back in the 90s, uh, we had to sort of be looking from Earth through the atmosphere that makes everything very fuzzy and twinkly anyway. But since 2009, um, NASA's had a new telescope in space whose name starts with C, uh, and I can't remember exactly what it is, but the the aim of this telescope is it looks uh, at stars and it detects how bright they are. And so then you can see if, uh, if the brightness drops, you can sort of see it's so bright all the time, and then there's a little dip where it gets dimmer. So if the the planet is going past, you know, once a week, you see this exactly the same dimness change once a week. And that's why it's these um, planets that are very close to their suns that have been discovered um, more recently because we've only had the telescope up there for three years. So if something's going around in a matter of weeks or months, we've had enough time to collect data to say, yep, we can see a pattern. It's definitely going around with this regular period. But some planets that are further out, more like Earth, that take like 365 days to to go around, uh, we've only had the telescope for three years, we've only seen that dip three times, and we can't confirm that we're, we're really sure that there's a planet there. 
That's right. It's going to take just a, a little more luck and um, maybe some more precision before they can find the Earth-like planets in the habitable zone. Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science. Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science. Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science. Progressive science. There are many theories to compare. Who experiments help us find the best one? The best one. There are many theories to compare. Who experiments help us find the best one? And that was Derek Muller with experiments. Anti-HIV cream made from cream. Melbourne researchers have vaccinated pregnant cows with an HIV protein and studied the first milk that cows produced after giving birth. The first milk, called the colostrum, is naturally packed with antibodies to protect the newborn calf from infections. The vaccinated cows produced HIV antibodies in their milk. Cows can't catch HIV, but their immune systems do develop antibodies against the foreign protein which can be cheaply harvested from their milk. In the laboratory, they've shown that these antibodies bind to HIV and that this inhibits the virus from infecting and entering human cells. The HIV-inhibiting antibodies from cow's milk will be developed into a microbicide cream that is applied into the vagina before or after sex to protect women from contracting sexually transmitted infections. Dr. Marit Kramsky is an early career scientist unveiling her research to the public for the first time thanks to Fresh Science, a national program sponsored by the Australian government. She hopes that the anti-HIV milk antibodies will provide a user-friendly, female-controlled, safe and effective tool for the prevention of sexually acquired HIV infection. The next step is to prove it's effective in humans, which will empower women to protect themselves against HIV around the world. Well, I'm all for anything... um <clears throat> that'll help protect against uh, STIs, uh, it, no matter how awkward the application process. I think it's particularly topical that um, that HIV has come up because uh, just last week we had an HIV conference here in Australia and uh, there was some new data released on, on AIDS rates in Australia and the bad news is that they are on the rise. So we were doing very well in, um, in reducing our rates of HIV but in the last couple of years, they're going back up again. Um, and they're particularly going up in the community that's involved in male-to-male sex. And, and there's no good explanation, really, for why one group is more affected than the other. But one of the things that the researchers thought could be um, contributing is that people are less afraid of AIDS than they used to be. They're, they're not seeing it so much as a death sentence and, um, and are sort of seeing it as something treatable. And so... Um, we really need to emphasise that um, safe sex and prevention is, is far, far better than a life on, on, on retroviral drugs to, to try and treat a, a disease like AIDS. Absolutely. Another factor is um, the testing, uh, the screening method in Australia, used in Australia takes a week of delay. This puts people off psychologically. They don't want to go test because they think, oh, it's going to spend a week anxiously waiting for the results whereas you know in other countries including in Africa like Ethiopia they've got instant 
screening, instant tests, or virtually within the same day you get the results. So perhaps they should look at bringing that into Australia as well. Absolutely. And one of the things that the UN researchers have found in the places where HIV is rampant is that the women in in Africa, and particularly in the African countries, have less control. So something like this that can give them the control rather than relying on men to use condoms or to get something else or, or to, with, to abstain or whatever other techniques they're advising. Circumcision in some cases. Um, if you can empower the women, that seems to be what changes societies around the world. Absolutely. Listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now for the next feature. It may sound like something out of a 50s sci fi horror movie, but there are gooey creatures called slime molds. They won't try to take over the world, but apparently these bizarre blobs of goo can remember where they've been. I spoke to Chris Reed, a biologist from the University of Sydney, about these strange, oozy slime moulds. Uh, slime moulds belong to a particular class of organism called protists. A lot of the really creepy and weird stuff that happens in the natural world gets lumped in with the protists, and slime mold's one of those things. If it's not a plant and it's not an animal and it's not a fungus, does it have any kind of brain or any kind of central nervous system of any kind? It's got no brain and no nervous system. Basically, the slime mold is just one big cell, but it's a cell capable of growing to up to several metres squared in area. And that cell can move around its environment, basically like an amoeba, throwing bits of itself around and, and following itself in a really gooey way. How is it possible for a cell to be so big? Because normally I think of cells being, you know, teeny tiny things. How does that work? Uh, the cell, while it's only one cell, it contains many, many nuclei. So as each nucleus divides through normal cell growth, uh, the whole cell just doesn't split in two like normal cells would. It just grows in size. Uh, it's able to stay as one large cell because the entire cytoplasm uh, is made of really two parts. One part is the external part of the slime mold, which is a little bit tougher than the rest, and the rest is a really liquid goo which, it, which flows in the middle of the slime mold. But each one of those bits of the slime mold is able to change into the other one. And so this interaction between the stiffer outer layer and the more fluid inner layer means that the whole cell can change its shape and be much be very flexible about where it goes in the environment. So they're gooey, kind of slimy. What, what colours are slime moulds as a rule? Uh, the slime mould that we work with is a yellow colour. There are thousands of different species of slime mould and they're actually much more common than you think. They're found all over the world, growing in the undergrowth and 
uh, digesting bacteria and yeasts and bits of wood just really noticed by people. Okay, so I understand that you've been doing some experiments with slime molds in the lab and discovered that they have some sort of memory. I'm wondering how something without a brain and is basically like ooze on the ground, one cellular ooze, can have memory. Well, it's certainly not a memory like you or I have. Uh, the slime mold not having a brain or any neurons can't store memories like we do. But our definition of memory in this case is just information that's stored and recalled that relates to past events. And in this case, the slime mold is remembering uh, areas it's already explored and recalling them later on to avoid moving in those areas so that it can search the environment more efficiently. And the memories, rather than being stored internally, uh, the memories as information relating to where it's explored are stored outside the cell in the environment in a slime trail that the slime mold leaves behind it as it moves. And so when the slime mold um, runs into this trail again in the future, it can recall, ah, I've been here before, and then it can choose to explore somewhere else that hasn't been, that it hasn't seen yet. And how does the slime mold move exactly? Sort of. So the slime mold, being a big bag of uh, of goo, it moves uh, by throwing out what we call pseudopods or little feet, and following them. But the direction, how the cell chooses which direction to move is really interesting. It behaves much like a flock of birds or a school of fish. It's a, a real collective system. So each part of the cell is actually vibrating at a specific frequency. And it's, it's pulsating much in the same way as our human muscle cells do. It's got myosin and actin filaments working against each other. The frequency at which each part of the cell is pulsating is determined by what's going on around the cell, so whether there's food in that area which the slime mold wants to move towards, or whether there's light uh, that the slime mold wants to move away from, because it doesn't like to be dried out. Each bit of the cell that's pulsating can also influence its neighbouring part of the cell to, to beat at its frequency. And what that means is that when the slime mold finds food, that part of the cell can relay that information to all other parts of the cell by influencing its neighbours to pulsate at its frequency. And that's what encourages the slime mold to move in a specific direction and do it as a unified whole. Okay, so going back to the memory navigation, so it spreads out like this gooey ooze in different directions and if it moves and comes back it can leave a sticky trail, a bit like someone going into the forest getting lost and leaving a ball of string. Is it kind of like that? Yeah, it's very much like that. So the slime that the slime mold leaves behind it is actually what the slime molds were named after. And it performs many functions, not just as a memory system, as we show. Uh, it prevents the cell from drying out. It can allow it to engulf its prey and its food, protect it from bacteria and other pathogens from getting in. Uh, but as it moves, it leaves this definite trail that you can see with the naked eye. And uh, what we found is that it reacts to that. Another, a new function of the slime is as a memory system. That was Chris Reed from the University of Sydney talking about gooey yet crafty slime moulds. The study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences Journal. Guinea pigs used to be the size of rhinos Raccoons were the size and ferocity of bears Oh, it's a fact 
So deal with that It's a fact Yeah, deal with that The moon is moving away from the earth By four centimetres a year And when it's gone We are all well and truly buggered Oh, it's a fact So deal with that It's a fact So deal with that Blue whales are bloody massive Their tongues weigh as much as an elephant Its heart is the size of a car And some of its blood vessels are so wide That you could swim down them Oh, it's a fact So you deal with that It's a fact So deal with that Your average pillow of about six years old Is made up from one-tenth of skin Living mites Dead mites It's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, you deal with that. It's a fact, deal with that. Ducks, quacks don't echo. Fact. It's a fact. Deal with that was written and performed by Sam Greenwood. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And sadly, that's all from us this time on this very cold day at Diffusion Science Radio. If you've got a science question, comment or story, you can send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com and we'll do our best to feature it in a future episode of Diffusion. And remember, it is supported drive, so please phone 95149500 and support Diffusion Science Radio on 2SER 107.3. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website at www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe and Arwen Cross. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER 107.3 in Sydney and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. Join us next week for more science wonderment on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Thank <laughs> you.